1: I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of Dr. Seuss, illustration, and poetry. First, we'll speak with Roxanne Owens about Dr. Seuss. Our second guest will be Beth Ann Anderson, and we'll talk about picture books and illustrations. Our last guest will be Tim Wadham, and we'll talk about poems and rhyming. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Bedtime in the Swamp by Kristen Crow, and we'll hear some people attempting. Tongue twisters. But before all that, let's take a look into my world.
3: world.
1: In my job as the education librarian in the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University, the other day I was exploring some research that connects the skills of drawing and writing. Some out there may ask, how in the world are those two things connected? While they both use our hands and some kind of marking instrument like a pencil, drawing and writing may seem to involve such different skills and abilities that there would be no way to connect them. However, research shows us a different perspective. Research has shown that for the youngest children, making pictures is the precursor to building their writing ability later on. But drawing is not just about the developmental precursor to being able to write. Studies have shown that all children integrate writing and drawing in very creative and sophisticated ways. Writing is one way we communicate, but especially in the 21st century, visual images are also another important way we communicate. Helping our children to understand that knowledge can be expressed in a wide range of forms is a great way to connect drawing and writing together. Research today shows that all abilities in all communication forms are much more connected than we previously thought. For example, one study found that students who exhibited severe deficits in writing made significant improvement in a program that combined writing and drawing. A fellow teacher who works in a local school has reported this same effect to me when he notes that as a teacher, his students see grand improvements in both their reading and writing abilities when they learn how to draw. So while that paper with doodles along the edge may look like boredom, or that colorful crayon masterpiece is only something to be mounted on the fridge, research may help us to see that maybe these drawings are really helping to support students' development in other communication forms like writing. And that's one thing research can help us to understand from Rachel's World.
4: Rachel's World
1: Theodore Geisel was born on this day in 1904, but most people would know him by his pen name, Dr. Seuss. Today is Dr. Seuss's birthday and National Read Across America Day. I've got Professor Roxanne Owens on the phone with me to discuss that inimitable Dr. Seuss. Welcome, Roxanne. Well, thank you very much. I am so interested in what you have to share with us today. One of the things that you have been recently writing about is Dr. Seuss, and we all love Dr. Seuss, <laughs> and we all love love his creation, and I think he really has been a person that has shared this joy and warmth with children in their reading. So tell us a little bit about your love for Dr. Seuss.
5: So the thing that Dr. Seuss was able to do was he was able to take the same words that were used in the the Dick and Jane type readers, which were um, books that used controlled vocabulary. So they had a list of 260 words that were um, well. Approved words that could be used in readers, and they were, you know, the the stories had such exciting plots as, you know, see Jane run, see Spot run, you know, see Dick chase. Um, so they Action were packed. Action-packed. Action-packed, <laughs> that's right. And um, so there was a theory that perhaps children were not reading because there wasn't that much exciting going on in the stories. And so uh, Dr. Seuss decided that, well, he was challenged actually by a publisher to try to take those same words on that approved sight word list and to try to make a more exciting story for kids to read. So he took that sight word list and he ended up creating The Cat and the Hat. And he originally actually wanted to call the book The King Cat and the Queen Cat, but Queen is not a word on the approved sight word list. And so he couldn't call it the queen cat and the king cat. So he went back to the sight word list and he decided that we would call it the cat in the hat because those two words were on the sight word list. So it took him a long time to actually write that book, to, to take the sight word list and make a, an exciting story out of those, those words. But he showed that you actually could take very simple words and make a story that was much more entertaining so children could be exposed to better literature and could learn to read using much more engaging books.
1: That is a great way to describe it. You know, In talking about Dr. Seuss, one of the things that I think is so rich about him that when you compare it to the Dick and Jane is the Dick and Jane, of course, had action and plot, but they they had very limited characterization. And I yes. think one of the great joys of Dr. Seuss is that he used these limited word palettes that you described so beautifully and made endearing, wonderful characters out of them. They just jump off
5: the page.
1: So, what what is your favorite Dr. Seuss character? <laughs>
5: You know, that's like trying to pick your favorite child. It's, it's so
1: true. I like to ask the hard questions.
5: <laughs> you know, I, actually, probably the first one that comes to mind is the Grinch. I I, am, I feel sorry for the Grinch, but I love how I love how he um, transitions in the end and and becomes a good guy in the end. So.
1: I I would agree with you. He's he's one of my favorites too, and I I think the Cat in the Hat probably is going to be one of the most classic characters of children's literature for mm-hmm. the rest of our existence of humanity. <laughs> I, I think everybody's going to going to know him as well. It really is interesting to me, though that. That he could do this so well, and he could bring this great joy. And he really has transformed, in my estimation, the field of children's literature, and the, particularly the field of beginning readers and the, the engagement of these these early readers um, into something that is so much more today that if we hadn't have had him, it, we wouldn't be where we were in, at this I... point.
5: Oh I, I absolutely agree. Well, you know, he did um he did go to Oxford um with the intention of becoming an English literature professor. So he did have training in um these in very complex complicated rhyme schemes and when you look at his rhyme patterns they're very similar to um Shakespeare and some other uh very sophisticated English literature patterns so he he really is a very sophisticated poet when it comes down to it. I think that we sometimes sell him short when we say, you know, oh, look at how they're so cute, you know, such such cute little poems. And, And really they're very, very sophisticated. It's sophisticated literature. And many of his stories also are... Political commentaries, in, in many ways, um, you know, you look at things like Yertle the Turtle, and very similar story similarities to Hitler when you look at them. So, the Butter Battle Book is a very similar story to the Cold the Cold War. So, uh, there's a lot of meat in his stories. He certainly
1: was very politically aware um, and mm-hmm. and definitely had things to say that he wanted to say, even some things that he said that we today would look back on and think, oh, that was a little bit out of line or something that we would oh, yes. not find acceptable today. Yes. But the times that he lived in and the the capability that he was to make this commentary and and to make it in such an accessible way at multiple levels to me just denotes a sense of genius that that i don 't think um, could be recreated into yes. in today 's environment so i just I just find him amazing as as you do as you do find mm-hmm. him amazing but as we as we look at his books, is there something that we could learn from him or the way that he wrote to help us maybe select other books or other things that we might want to share with our children? What are what are some of the basic foundational principles here that we might want to take away from from his writings?
5: I really appreciate his um the rhyme pattern the the rhyme patterns I appreciate I also appreciate the whimsy the sense of whimsy in his books. They're just fun and they they're imaginative. His sense of imagination, I think is unparalleled. Um, just the the crazy characters in them, the crazy things they do. Uh, just you just can't help but laugh Um, but I think the way that they touch your imagination is what makes them so beautiful and I, I think that's what that's what people have to just look at and then say now how do I find some other books that, that do this, too, that I open up and they make me just smile because they're just the, the colors in them and the, the sense of whimsy in them and just the, the sense of fun. Because that's what you should feel when you, I mean, of course you, of course you want books too that are going to touch your heart and that, you know, make you, um, you know, make you cry and do all of those other emotional things too. But I, I tend to like books that are fun and that make me feel whimsical.
1: Well, I it's me too, I agree. And particularly for that age group that yeah. these books might be targeted. I think that sense mm-hmm. of fun and whimsy really captures the point of view and developmental needs of children mm-hmm. at that age. And so I think right. finding books that match that that connective need for that kind of fun, playful use of language, playful exploration of characters is just really developmentally appropriate in my estimation. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So what are some of your other favorite books for sharing, Roxanne? What What are some of those other things that, that touch that beautiful sense of whimsy for you?
5: I'm a big fan of poetry for children, fun, funny poetry for children. I like a lot of, well, of course, Shel Silverstein, of course. I like Jack Prelutsky poems for children. I like Mary Ann Hoberman's poems for children. There are a lot of poetry websites that I send parents to, like gigglepoetry.com. And um, there are a lot of poetry websites where kids can actually, there are templates they can fill in poetry fun, and I like those kinds of things, because then the kids are actually creating the poems themselves, which I think is wonderful, and they can see them right there online, uh, what they've created, so I think when the kids can create the poems themselves, that's terrific, so I, I very much like those. You know i I have shelves and shelves and shelves of books in front of me so
1: that that's wonderful <laughs> that just goes to show that you are a literacy expert right <laughs> Anybody who calls themselves a literacy expert should have shelves and shelves and shelves of books in front of them beside them underneath them <laughs> yes, I
5: do. they're ever they're everywhere here yeah
1: <laughs> well that 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 just goes to show that there there's so much engagement there, and I like this sense of the poetry i think that 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 is one of the things you're you're very right with dr seuss and for children of this age that that beautiful connection to poetry and language that's one of the reasons that a lot of picture books and books for this age have that kind of sense of poetry or rhythm or rhyme that you may not find in like a novel or, or something right, else for right. for an older child and i also really appreciate that sense that we can use their reading to connect to their writing and Mm -hmm. all of those things. Because as you, as you well know, all literacy aspects are interconnected. Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, sometimes kids just get overwhelmed by too many words on a page also. And if you can find like nice little short poems, sometimes that, that helps some kids who are starting to feel a little overwhelmed by, oh, that's a lot of, there's a lot of text on that page. So that's another reason sometimes the poetry is a good way to go.
1: That is a really wonderful recommendation because it can get overwhelming, particularly as you get a little more independent in your reading. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the, the layout and the words on the page that can, that can be of a struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, Roxanne, this has been such a wonderful visit. I appreciate you sharing your love of Dr. Seuss and your love of poetry and your love of words with us today. It has been just an honor to speak with you.
5: Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Roxanne Owens is a professor of elementary reading at DePaul University. Now it's time for story time with Bedtime in the Swamp by Kristen Crow.
0: I was sitting by a swamp just a humming a tune with the fireflies dancing neath the fat gold moon when off in the distance was a splashing sound. So I stood on my tippy toes and looked around. I heard a splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. A splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Well my hands were a shakin' and my heart beat raced as I leapt through the marshes and a monster chased. When it followed behind me in the sludgy slime, It was rockin' and a swayin' the entire time. It went splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom Splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom so I hid in the branches of a willow tree and I saw my kid sister staring up at me. She said, Ma said to fetch you cause it's time for bed. But sis, there's a monster in the swamp, I said. We heard a splish splash, rumba rumba bim bam boom. Splish splash, rumba rumba bim bam boom. Then out crept a shadow from the swampy place. We were scared till we saw our older brother's face. He said, Ma said to fetch you cause it's time for bed. Quick, hide! There's a monster in the swamp, we said. We heard, Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom! Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom! Well, we looked for the monster, wandering where he went till we spied our two cousins that our ma had sent. Saying, we came to fetch you cause it's time for bed. Watch out, there's a monster in the swamp, we said. We heard, splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. So we all sat and shivered neath the fat gold moon and the crickets were chirpin', and the catfish were slurpin', and the frogs were a-croakin', and our feet were a-soakin', and the tree was a-stoopin', and my eyelids were a-droopin'. And we all clung together, full of dread and fear. I said, hey, do you think we'll spend all night up here? then we heard... Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. And out sprang the monster that had made us scared with its big feet a stomping and its sharp teeth bared. I yelled, Help! It's the creature from the Black Lagoon. But just when we thought we faced a certain doom, We heard splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Then out of the darkness stomped my dear old Ma. She burst through the cattails and she cried, Aha! I've been trying to get you children home to bed, and I find you a-hiding in this tree instead. And we went. Crunch, crash, tumble, tumble, split, splat, sploom. Crunch, crash, tumble, tumble, split, splat, sploom. Well, Ma looked over us saying, no one's hurt, but I don't think I've ever seen so much dirt. Now, all of you go and get washed up for bed, and that goes for your new playmate too. She said. So he went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. And we went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. I went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom.
1: Books beautifully blend the two parts of their title, pictures or images, and text in a book form. But how does an illustrator really put those two together? Today I've got illustrator Beth Ann Anderson in the studio with me. Welcome, Beth Ann. Thank you. Bethann, you are an artist and you do picture books and other illustrations for books, but you're also a teacher here at the university. So let's kind of talk from both ends of that spectrum a little bit about this wonderful issue of how illustrations support text in a story and what the role of each of them are. So let's start out with this kind of question of when you think about illustration, what is the role of an illustration? In a book, what what role does it play? Yeah,
2: great question. And um, there's a couple things in a picture book. I think the pictures drive the story. You can almost tell the story from the pictures. For example, if you're a famous book, where the wild things are, you know, there's a lot of pages. There's no type on at all, and you just move you know, and let the wild rumpus begin, and you just turn the page. And, you know, there's no text. So the pictures are driving it. In a book like Treasure Island, where you have someone like N.C. Wyeth illustrating, then you have where his pictures, you would just read, 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 till you got to one of the pictures. And N.C. said something interesting. He tries to illustrate something that isn't in the text. For example, in Treasure Island, when the main character says goodbye to his mother, you know, it says, and then he left. Well, in the picture, he has the boy turning and walking away and the mother crying. That's not in the text at all. But so he would try to find what was in between the lines in the story and illustrate them. Other illustrators try to do exactly what the text says. And somewhere, you know, some are successful, some not successful. So it's kind of an individual story thing. So
1: let's let's go along that line. This interest, this really interests me. This sense of some are successful and some are not successful. So, what are those things that are successful? How would you characterize success in illustrating? I mean, even from your own perspective, if you were illustrating a picture book, what would you feel would be a success?
2: Well, can I can I give you a big success? Yes. Okay. I think the Sistine Chapel was an illustrative problem. Uh, Michelangelo had a problem. He was to do scenes from Genesis, and uh, a success when he did uh, God breathing life into Adam. It's a famous piece, The Two Hands Are Touching. But if you read the text, which is the Bible, it would be uh, God breathed life into Adam. It would almost be a CPR kind of um, illustration if you followed the text, but if you do it to feels right, there he had just the touching, you know, totally different than the text. So I would call that successful. It worked really well. So it's almost two stories that conceptually turn into one story and feels right and it's it's a very tender balance to get and you've looked at children's books enough that when you see that one picture that just kind of says it all and you kind of melt like i'm so glad i bought this book <laughs> It gets you to the bookstore again. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. I I love
1: that sense of it's solving a problem. Because I think oftentimes we don't equate those two things with art or illustration. I think sometimes we think of it kind of abstractly. But really, when an illustrator is looking at a text or looking at this, what they're doing is trying to solve problems.
2: That is exactly what we think. In the design department, we were coming up with... um, Um, an overall statement for the design department. And one thing that everyone, photography, graphic design, illustration, animation, agreed on, we are problem solvers. And so when you illustrate, you're given an assignment or a problem that you need to solve visually. And that's really hard to do when it comes to a story. You kind of have to study the story and come up with some kind of a system to look at the story differently.
1: I, I love this sense of, you know, having to kind of visually see it and approach it from a visual perspective. So how do you go about kind of developing that visual problem solving that you would teach students? How do, how do you get your brain around that? Because not all people think that way.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, not all artists sometimes. Um, what I do is I'll, give a problem in class. You need to solve this problem, be it, you know, a quick three sec- uh, three sections of a story or a paragraph or something. Whatever the problem is, I hand it to them. And then they come up with something. And we put it up on the board in a critique. And then I will say, what were you trying to do? Well, I wanted this dramatic moment to happen between these two characters. Well, sometimes their image are two characters not even looking at each other. And I go, okay, so that's what you wanted. This is what's happening in your picture. So they kind of have to come face-to-face. Did I do that? What I wanted to and what I ended up with. And there's sometimes big gaps, you know. So... Then you, they have to redo it and use color and line and design to get what they wanted. So.
1: I I love that sense of you know this was really solving problems. But then once the once you think you've solved the problem, there's this process of editing and rethinking things, and and it's not just about oh this flew out on the page and it's beautiful and and focused, you really have to do this kind of restructuring. So how do you do that as an artist? How do you have that critical eye, particularly for your own for your own work?
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever have enough I, – I mean, you're always hard on yourself um, as an artist. I don't know of, of an artist that isn't, oh, my gosh, you know, did this work – but my point is you should always go with your best idea at the time, whatever it is. If you get it 10 minutes before it's due, just crush that other. And it's a hard thing for anyone because you've spent hours and hours on the project. And to rip it up is kind of a brave thing. But I think you have to do that to get a better idea and you have to go through a lot of bad ideas to get to a good idea. I think I, that's normal. I, <laughs> I I
1: think that is normal for any kind of artistic yeah. thing. And I think I think that's a really unique way to look at it, this sense of problem solving and then also this sense of critical thinking. We have to be really critical. And then also this sense of we may have to start all over again. And right. And so building those kinds of habits or building those kinds of non-artistic kinds of things that are important for any, I mean, those kinds of problem solving, critical thinking, grit, those kinds of things are so important just for life, right? <laughs> not, right. Ju- not necessarily even yeah. for making art. How do we do that? I mean, how how could art maybe help us or how could learning illustration help us understand those kinds of skills a lot better?
2: Well, I think it's a lifetime to develop. And, you know, sometimes things come very quickly and sometimes... It takes forever um, to come up with a problem, and you never know when you go to solve a problem which you're going to be—if you're going to get thrown off that bucking idea, <laughs> you know, eight times, or you know, ooh, a smooth ride. You know, it, it's always new.
1: And that really, I think, is just the joy of yeah. learning and growing and, you know, developing in these kinds of ways. And and that's a challenge, particularly for us as parents or teachers yeah. or concerned adults, to help our children along that path. So what kind of tips might you have just from your experience as a teacher? Or, to help kids kind yeah. of get on that path so they can start that lifetime and That's right. get to the well, falling I water I always pit. give
2: a prize to the person that gets the first rejection in class yes. on an assignment. I go, whoa, you're on your way. Fifty of those and you may make it.
1: <laughs> Maybe like more like 500 sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. You try to be a little positive.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. That's true. But,
2: um, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. And that is the difference. Um, between, I think, someone who is successful, that they go through the rejections and keep going. There's a lot of students and a lot of people that get rejected and then give up and I totally understand that. I mean, rejection goes into your veins and kind of bubbles out of your skin in a painful way. But once you understand that, (laughs) that it will pass, then you're okay. But I think the trick is going, okay, that's part of it. And you only learn from your mistakes. I mean, it's a trite comment, but it's absolutely true, you know. And so I I like them I, I mean I've learned everything I know from bad mistakes, you know, that I've made. So um I'm thrilled when they make a mistake. I think, oh, that's where you learn.
1: Great. That is such a wonderful note to end on because it really is. It's about making mistakes. It's about growing. It's about learning to solve those problems. Yeah. And and there's so many ways we can do that. And particularly for those adults out there who have students who are into art or into drawing, this is some good information for them to be able to say, yeah, it, you can do it. You can yeah. If you are passionate about it and you love it, you can make it, right. even after 50 50- rejections. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with yeah. us today, Beth
2: Ann. Thanks, Rachel.
1: Beth Ann Anderson is an illustrator of some of the most beautiful picture books. Now, we sent our student production assistant Natalie Anderson to ask people to attempt some tricky tongue twisters. Let's take a listen.
4: In honor of Dr. Seuss's 115th birthday, I've collected some tongue twisters. Do our radio staff members have delicate diction, or will this be a tongue twister train wreck worthy of the Seussical Wordsmith? Start with an easy one. She sells seashells by the seashore.
2: She sells seashells by the shore. She
4: sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore.
0: She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. By the seashore.
4: How can a clam cram in a clean cream can?
0: How can a clam cram in a clean cream can?
4: How can a clam cram in a clean cream can? Clean cream can. Wow. How can a clam cram in a clean cream can? How can a clam cram in a clean cream can?
0: How can I clam cram in a clean cream can?
4: You know New York. You need New York. You know you need unique
0: New York. Unique New York.
3: You know New York, you need New York, you know you need unique New York.
4: You know New York, you need New York, you know you need unique New York. Oh wow, unique New York. You know New York, you need New York. You know you need unique, you know. New York New York. You know New York, you need New
5: York. You
4: know you need unique New York.
0: You know New York, you need New York. You knows, you know, you need unique New York.
4: I wish to wash my Irish wristwatch. My Irish wristwatch.
0: I wish to wash my Irish wish wristwatch. Dang it.
4: I wish to wash my Irish wristwatch. I wish to wash my Irish Irish wristwatch. This is hard. I wish to wash my Irish wristwatch. <laughs>
6: I wish to wash my Irish wristwatch.
4: Betty bought her bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bit of better butter will make my batter better, so twas better. Betty Butter bought a bit of better bu- butter. Oh wow.
5: Betty Butter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my butter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bit of better butter will make my batter better. So it was better, Betty Butter bought a bit of better butter.
0: <laughs> Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my butter, it will make my butter bitter. But a bit of better butter will make my Butter better so it turns better Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter.
4: Betty Bodler bought some butter, but she said the butter bitter. She said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. But a bit of butter better butter will make it better butter. <laughs> so it was better. Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter.
0: Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter butter's
2: bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. but a bit of better butter will make my batter better. So twas better. Betty bought bought a bit of better butter. Betty
4: bought bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it if I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. but if but if a bit of bitter butter will make my batter better, so twas better,
1: Betty butter bought a bit bit of better butter. <laughs> Holy, <laughs> That's hard. One of the easiest ways to engage young children in literacy is with rhymes and poetry. Today, I have librarian and literacy expert Tim Wadham in the studio. Tim also happens to be my brother because we like to keep literacy in the family. Welcome, Tim. Happy to be here. Tim is a librarian, and one of the things that you have spent your life being a kind of a children's librarian and, and working with a lot of, of kids' things throughout your library career is engaging with kids and words and stories in such a unique way. You recently just published a book with the American Library Association called Wordplay. So let's talk a little bit about that book. So how did this book come to be?
3: Well, Wordplay has a very... Precise origin, and that comes from a school librarian in the Provo, Utah Elementary School District, the Provo, Utah School District. Uh, Her name was Katie Blake. She has passed away, but for a year after I got my uh, master's degree in library science, I worked part-time in her library to see how a a school library works. And Katie had this amazing program that she called Child Read – and I helped implement that program during the year I worked for her. She had a Kiva area in her library, and so it it was all the classes could come in and classes did come in at least once a week and Katie had developed a program by which she was able to teach children the joy of language and words um and It was a very elegant program, very simple and what what she did was she had these large Pages, I guess you'd call them, the huge, gigantic post-it notes that everyone can, can see. And she had written poems on these post-it notes. And so every the first thing that the kids did when they came in was to read the poem out loud together, choral reading of poetry. And I saw during the year I worked for her how just that created such a strong sense of language and how much the kids progressed in their literacy. And they loved – The poems, they loved the way they sounded. And so that was – so she would do several poems and they would read them out loud together. That was the way it started. And then the other part of wordplay – well, child read as she called it then – was that uh, she was trying to teach children literature in a school library setting. She was trying to teach them the genres of literature, fantasy, realistic fiction, contemporary fiction historical fiction she was trying to teach them all these genres and introduce them to the best of literature so after the choral poetry reading she would typically read a chapter or something out loud to the kids and then she would uh, also have activities directly based on the book and i w- i was truly inspired by this program and, and by seeing the growth in kids how you could literally see them reading better having larger vocabularies as they went through this program. And so knowing that I wasn't going to go the direction of school librarianship, I was thinking about how could I do what she did in a public library setting where I don't have the captive audience because she was doing this on very... She had all the classes, all grade levels coming in once a week, so she was covering all the bases, you know, K through 6. And the answer to that came when I was approached by one of the school librarians from a school across the street from my library. And she said, we just got some money and we need to have an after-school literacy enrichment program for our kids. Can you do a program for us? We'll bring them over twice a week after school. I said, yes. I I know
1: just the program.
3: (laughs) I know just the program. And so I began to adapt Katie's child read program for my public library setting. And you have to understand tying this back in with my book that the book Wordplay, this book of mine is basically poems and uh, activity ideas and books that would be suitable for reading out loud and how you can replicate this particular program in a public library setting and also even in a school library setting or in a home school setting.
1: And I think that's important to remember that this this kind of thing doesn't just have to be with libraries. It right. could be in homes or it could be, you know, if you have maybe a community group that you work with. I know locally we have a lot of community groups that work with these kinds of literacies, uh, boys and girls clubs yes. or, or things like that. This this program could apply there. So tell us maybe one of these stories that you're thinking about, about what did you see? How did you see these kids improve in Texas when you implemented the program?
3: Um, The first thing that I saw was the fact that uh, they were able to relate to stories and understand what was going on and really connect with the stories. And I I especially remember reading out loud to them uh, a book by Sid Fleischman, The Whipping Boy, which won the Newbery Award. And I suggest – I told – the school librarian said I wanted to read this aloud to the kids. That's a short book and I chose short books where we could read a chapter at a time and finish you know, in four to six weeks, you know, two times a a week. And the librarian said, I don't want you to read that book to them because they can't understand a book set in this quasi-medieval Setting It'll mean nothing to these kids from the projects. But I I forged ahead and read The Whipping Boy to these kids, and it turned out to be their favorite book. And they related to it because they could understand, even being from the projects, the basic theme of the book, which was it's terrible to get punished for something that you didn't do. They know what it feels like to get punished for something you didn't do.
1: And I think that that's a wonderful thing to remember that books can speak to us sometimes even, even better when they're kind of out of our own context. And being able to just engage with the words and the story helps us see ourselves and the world around us in really fundamentally transformative ways.
3: Absolutely. And see, that's the thing is that, that we learned that, that the kids could see themselves even in, in a book that was far removed from their day-to-day reality. And so that, that was a terrific experience and that, that's one story. Another story is that when these kids are impacted by literature, it stays with them because I was with uh, the library in Texas for 14 years and this was my very first experience at the very beginning of that career. At the very end of that, the last year I worked there, an adult male walked into the, a different library. I was at a different branch library at that time. But he walked in and he saw me. His eyes went wide. He says, you read to us back in West Dallas. You read stories to us. And he was reading to his own kids now. And that was amazing to me. It, of course, it made me feel really, really old. <laughs> that a kid that I had worked with
1: 14 years ago was yeah. now adult and had their own kids. <laughs>
3: But that made me realize that that experience and that program had a lot of potential power to uh, really expose kids to to literature.
1: I love that story because it just shows how long the impact was. So fourteen years later, there was still an impact, and not only did it impact him, it was now impacting his own children. Yeah.
3: And yes, absolutely.
1: And I think that, that that's one of the amazing parts of this. One of the things I love about this program is that connections that we make between literature and I think the sense of it's poems and books and novels and picture books and all of these kinds of things all at once. That's something that's really quite easy for parents to do in absolutely. their own life. So how how would you recommend parents go about that about connecting books with other kinds of forms of literature or maybe even experiences or other things that they're living in their lives. See, that's
3: that's the thing is, is you have to connect with stories, connect stories with real life is what I mean.
1: And I love that because really that is what makes stories so powerful is when we make connections. A story in isolation doesn't change us, but a story connected to something else is what changes us. And
3: that's why, why it's so important that all of the activities – that you do that are be based directly on the book. And in wordplay, I have several examples and specific activities that tie in directly with the book.
1: And I love that, too. And I think sometimes, particularly when we're trying to do some of these activities and that type of thing in homes, we may get activities that really aren't directly connected or aren't the best connected activities. So how would you suggest that maybe parents or people that are looking at doing a kind of connected program like this, what characteristics are they looking for to really connect those activities in a meaningful way?
3: Well, they're looking for something. They're, they're using the book as material for ideas for activities. What does this book suggest to me and how could I create an activity using this book? And uh, for example, most recently we did uh, the, uh, Hugo, the Hugo Cabret book. And I did a program with the Hugo Cabret book where I had these kids coming in after school once a week. And we did a number of activities directly from the book. We watched movies that the book talks about, including the George Millier film, The Trip to Mars. We had an artist come in and teach them how to draw like Brian Selznick with crosshatching. And uh, we also had them tell their own stories in pictures. We used, you know, photographing different scenes and then putting the pictures together to tell a story just as Selznick does with his pictures. So it's all just things suggested by the book.
1: And that's easy to do, to take the book and just, what does it show us what are things there how does that connect to other things in the world mm. and making those connections actually becomes quite easy when you when you think of it that way and connecting that and there there's all kinds of things i know that uh, we've done all kinds of things like that where we read the book and then we we do activities or you know watch a movie related to the book or mm. eat a food that's in the book or something like that that's yes. easily executable in the home Well, thank you so much, Tim, for your time today and helping introduce this wonderful world of book connections and how we can take so many things and extend out our world of literacy for our children. Thank you. Tim Wadham is my brother, but he is also an author and librarian. Now it's time for me to join with other librarians around the Librarians Table to talk about children, books, and life Today, I'm talking with Joe Everett and Marissa Bischoff about creating a family narrative. We're in studio today with Joe and Marissa, two of my very favorite family history librarians. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I am excited to talk about a subject that I am passionate about, and I know both of you are passionate about, about family history and genealogy. So to start off our talk today, let's start with a question. Why family history? Why is it so important? Jump in, Joe. Tell us why.
6: (laughs) Well, you know, I think today it's especially relevant because we live in a very uh, difficult time, really. Um, It's a stressful time to be living and there's a lot of things that people are concerned about. There's the political climate. There's the actual climate. And um, there's this feeling of uncertainty and um, of uh, kind of instability in the world. And in fact, the American Psychiatric Association conducts an annual poll and they found that stress or anxiety levels are on the rise in America. And they cite things like health and safety and finances as being part of that concern. And family history is something that people, I think, are drawn to because they they feel connected. They feel grounded. And it, it's kind of a touchstone of something. It's something that they can kind of hold on to as um, – a steadying influence in, in their lives that might otherwise be kind of tumultuous.
1: I don't think many people would connect it with kind of stress reduction, but <laughs> I think it is. I mean, I think it really is that kind of grounding that you're talking about. I know, um, Marissa, you do family history kind of as your own family history, not only yeah. librarianship for it.
4: So have you found that to be
1: true? Have you found that kind of
4: context to be true that Joe's talking about? Definitely. I started it, and I did it during my kids' nap time, and, you know, it's kind of stressful dealing with little kids, but then they'd go to bed, and I would just relax, do family history, and definitely, I felt more grounded, and it was a big source of stress relief, and I hadn't thought about that before, but, but yes, it was.
6: You and I, Marissa, have um, re- recently read the same article um, by New York Times uh, writer uh, Bruce Feiler. Mm-hmm. Um, and do uh, you want maybe tell us a little bit about
4: yeah, that? Yeah, it was citing a, a really interesting study by uh, Duke and Favouche uh, from Emory University. So I thought it was pretty interesting. And I remember reading it or a, like something in the Reader's Digest um, about this this research that was done. But they basically found that children who knew their family history – um, had higher self-esteem, more resiliency, and lower levels of anxiety and behavior problems, kind of what we were talking about. So not just anecdotal, there's some really good research on it. And they base it on this assessment where they asked these kids 20 questions. Um, and there were things like, do you know where your grandparents grew up? And where did your parents meet? And do you know these things? And, and if they did... Um, or they knew a greater percentage of them. They had, you know, higher resiliency.
6: They did a, a series of psychological yeah. tests, kind of your standard psychological tests, and they found that the kids that uh, could answer those questions at a higher, a higher percentage of those questions, um, you know, demonstrated, you know, more. Um, they had a higher indicators of, you know, good psychological health. That is and, That is yeah. so
1: cool. That that is really foundationally cool. And I think some of those questions will surprise people, right? Cuz I think sometimes when people traditionally think of family history or genealogy, they think of, you know, kind of the dry stuff, the the names and the dates. And this is more kind of personal information. So, is how do you perceive that difference? I mean, particularly when we talk about engaging with family history with kids. What is that difference between just doing, you know, they were born here and they died here and and where your parents met and these more kind of story-based things, mm-hmm. I guess?
6: Right. You know, I think typically when we say genealogy or family history, we picture, you know, research at a microfilm reader or pouring through dusty books. We and, certainly
1: do in the library. That's yeah. important. Right. <laughs> and, you
6: know, as a genealogist myself, I love microfilm and dusty books, but... um I think that it's really more and and for me too it's more about the stories uh bringing these ancestors to life um finding a connection to them a real personal connection to them and so I really that's in these in these studies you know that's really what it's about about the stories um One of the things that the author said was that the single most important thing you can do for your family is to develop a strong family narrative. And a a family narrative there's kind of three types of family narratives that are common. One is, you know, kind of the rags to riches. We came here with nothing and we built up, you know, uh, we made something of ourselves. And then there's the we used to have everything and now we have nothing. And then the third story is kind of more the up and down, you know, where. here's some good things that happen in our family, but here's some also difficult and tragic things that are happen in our family, and here's how we worked through them. And that third narrative is really one that's kind of the most common, and it's also um, one that is kind of the most impactful and helpful for people to be able to see that, okay, I can get through this because my ancestors were able to get through it.
1: That intergenerational connectivity, I just think – is sums up family history really in its very foundational way and makes it so much more important than i think some people give it credit for which which i think is really cool particularly for our children and youth in this day and age like you're talking about Joe i think that's great so as we close up our conversation today Tell me, like, both of you, like, one tip, right? Where would you start? You know, because if it has all these great benefits, um, what would be the first step? If you are, like, brand new to family history or brand new to this thing, what would you do? What would you recommend?
6: Well, I think that a really great place to start, actually, is with yourself or with if you're a parent with with a child, starting with themselves. You know, having conversations like, um, you know, they may wonder what was it like the day I was born? You know, um, how much did I weigh and how? what time of day was I born and where were you living at the time and, and things like that and then broadening that out to um, mom and dad sharing stories about where they were born, where they came from, how they met and things like that. So it doesn't have to be research. It doesn't have to be in the 1500s, eight generations back. You know, it can begin with just your family unit and recalling the stories that you have and then um, sharing, taking that a step further back, you know, to the next generation, kind of a step at a time.
4: I love it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, it's with stories and you want to start close to your family. So yourself, your kids, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and then go from there. And that'll kind of spark it. Which is easy to do.
1: Just mm, yeah. sit around and talk and right. you start it and you, you've developed some of these great benefits and stress reducing benefits of a family history. Thank you both for sharing these great insights today. Thank I'd like to thank Joe and Marissa for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had such a great show. First, we talked with Roxanne Owens about Dr. Seuss. Then, we spoke with illustrator Beth Ann Anderson about illustrating picture books. Our last guest was author and librarian Tim Wadham, and we spoke about his book, Wordplay. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.